high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, Brett Baer is going to be on this hour. We're also following the off-year election results. Also, bad news. If you like pandas, China wants them back. I think we're boxing them up now like a Teddy Roosevelt statue and sending them back. Uh, that is just more proof that we're not getting along with China. Also, Anthony Blinken had joined the G7 summit in the latest attempt to fix the world. Uh, because it seems to need fixing. Before we get to Brett Bear, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Is the White House's view that these actions should be condemned, the pulling of the pulling down of them? Is that peaceful protest to pull I, that down, or should I, you not be I'm doing just that? not going to go into uh, specifics on that particular thing. Really? Why not? Israel at war. More progress on the ground. Pressure to pause increasing. Protests against Israel only increasing. And KJP coming up short again. Number two. The only issue where Democrats have a lead is abortion. Mm -hmm. So guess what Glenn Youngkin does? He makes abortion the centerpiece of his election campaign in Virginia. It is a dereliction of duty. Republicans had better wake up. That is uh, Steve Hilton, who often is right. This time, I think he's right again. Off your election, way off for Republicans, still plagued by messaging on abortion and outraised by Democrats in most major races. Number one. They still don't like Joe Biden. His approval rating in the exit poll in Ohio last night was 41%. We asked the question in the exit poll, should Joe Biden run for re-election? Three quarters of voters said, no, Joe Biden should not run for re-election. We asked the same question of Donald Trump. A majority said he shouldn't run for a second term either. Uh, that is uh, Steve Kornacki uh, on the exit polls. 2024, pressure builds on Joe to bow out. More polls show Trump catching additional steam as the third debate takes place tonight, with at least two of the candidates also beating Biden head-to-head. We will discuss it all with Brett Baer. Uh, Brett, kind of a weird night, kind of a, a half-election night. But the thing that stood out is I thought Glenn Youngkin was going to roll. He was going to flip this, uh, keep the Senate and flip the House, whatever it would, the combination. He now lost both. How damaged is he right now? Damaged uh, to the point where he's not going to, there's no future as far as the presidential. And I don't think uh, he needed the win. Um, he needed a big victory. He didn't get it. Yeah, and it, it goes back to maybe messaging on abortion. I thought that he did something that Republicans have been counseling to do, settle in on 15 weeks and leave it alone like Marco Rubio in Florida. Yeah, I mean, to Steve Hilton's point, if it's you know, it's it's basically a focus on that issue. There are other issues. I mean, he had big tax uh, plans that were going to be passed if he had control of the Senate and the House. There were other big issues, but instead went and led with the 15 weeks. And um, obviously, that issue is very, very potent for Democrats in particular. So you have a couple of things. You have uh, the abortion. Uh, abortion rights uh, passed in Ohio, and then you have Virginia. They did not flip uh, the House or the Senate. And then you have the governor of Kentucky, the Democrat, in a very red state, won again. Uh, governor Bashir keeps the job. Uh, here's David uh, Daniel Cameron, who was backed by Mitch McConnell and President Trump, cut 14. Well, that didn't turn out exactly how I wanted it to. I called the governor. 
uh, to congratulate him. I know from his perspective and from all of our perspectives that we all want the same thing for our future generations. We want a better Commonwealth, one in which it can ultimately be. I got it. So, so Cameron, uh, I think Chris Christie went out of his way to say, hey, Cameron lost because he got too tight with Trump. I think it was the abortion issue, and I've been looking at some of these ads, Brett. It's pr- they're pretty, uh, uh, pretty blunt. Yeah, listen, this issue is the one issue that um, Democrats have in their corner. The president is vulnerable on every other issue, to Steve Hilton's point, and yet this is the issue. I, wouldn't expect, I would expect President Biden and Kamala Harris to be out and about very soon, on the issue of abortion specifically, because it's a rallying cry. Um, I also think that in Kentucky, you have to realize that this candidate, this governor, ran against President Biden, not with him, on a number of big issues. And, uh, and that's worth pointing out. Also, that Daniel Cameron you know, had high t- uh, strong ties to Mitch McConnell, but did embrace Donald Trump at the end. But Mitch McConnell was not a popular figure inside Kentucky right now either. Bashir is a really good Democratic candidate. If Democrats are smart, they'd look at him uh, for higher office later down the road, perhaps. Uh, But the party is not where Andy Mm -hmm. Bashir is. So I'm looking at the latest CNN poll, and it shows, again, uh, when it comes to the 2024 election, Trump's in a good place. He's up by four. Nikki Haley would be up by six. DeSantis beats uh, Biden by two. We saw the CBS poll, which had all the battleground states, now we find out, uh, too, that there's more than just David Axelrod who doesn't think Joe Biden should run. Listen to former Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan. Cut three. The whole country wants to move on. And I, I think that it would be uh, the right thing to do for the president to not run. What's in the best interest of the country here? And I, I don't mean to be so frank. I love Joe Biden. He's done a great service to this country. But now it's time for us to just take the next step. So, when does this become a groundswell? Yeah, listen, you're talking about uh, Asherod has never been a big fan of Biden. But Tim Ryan defended Biden to the hilt in his race against uh, uh, Lance and I think in Ohio. And I think that uh, you've got to look at more and more of these people speaking out. Uh, it's not that popular inside Democratic circles to do, but they're doing it because they do feel there's a major vulnerability. I will say that last night probably gave Democrats a little bit of a a boost uh, after a tough week of polling uh, with the the president and the vice president. I will. You know, when you see the party coming apart like it is and you're seeing it just as bad, if not worse, than when the Republicans shot themselves in the foot with this whole speaker issue. But then when you see the censure and you see how they're calling him Genocide Joe among the most liberal amongst their base and even in the House. And yesterday, a censure, uh, Brett Bear was handed down and it was passed with a lot of with, I think, 22 Democrats voting to censure Rashida Tlaib, Rashida Tlaib. Listen to her not back off prior to the actual vote. Cut 34. Do you realize what it's like, Mr. Chair, for the people outside the chamber right now? listening in agony to their own government dehumanizing them. To hear the President of the United States, we helped elect, dispute death tolls as we see video after video of dead children and parents under rubble. We don't really trust what Hamas says. It doesn't mean there's no death. But 
She is just not contrite, backed up by the squad, Jamal Bowman uh, and many others. They are not backing up. How fractured is this party over this issue specifically? Significantly. And this is a big deal. You know, that censure, it is, it is what it is. She's one of 26 House members in the history of the House of Representatives to be censured. She didn't have to walk down to the well of the chamber and listen to the resolution be, be read. That's what happens to most people who are censured, almost all. She, they, she got away with not doing that. Um, and I, I think that the fact that you, you point out she's not apologetic or contrite is a big deal. From the river to the sea is not very tough to figure out for a lot of people about what that means. And yet um, somehow, you know, some of her colleagues are saying this is not um, this is not what it means, but it is what it means. So this week we saw Prime Minister Netanyahu give his first interview, gave it to ABC about what happens in the future of Gaza and will he have a pause? He says, I will not have a pause and we will stay. We're going to occupy Gaza until further notice. Were you surprised at that, Brett? Yeah, I think, you know, those are the those are the plans that Netanyahu has. Uh, the fact that he's articulating them to ABC is a little bit of a surprise because obviously it raises eyebrows and and stirs up the pot about what the host going after Hamas looks like. Uh to portray that they're going to be in Gaza um, for the future is something that obviously stirs the pot on the Arab street. To rescue the Constitution is now out, still selling well. What are people asking well, time you? time out, time out. Congratulations on your book, uh, the launch this week, and it is an awesome book. I am one of the blurb people, and uh, I highly endorse it. It is an amazing, amazing read. Oh, thanks so much, Brad. I appreciate it. And like you, we both have specials on Fox Nation that will give you a good idea of everything about the book, what the book's about, bring you to the actual places in which this stuff took place. And eventually they'll be on Fox News if the war stops. Right. Uh, and I go, I look forward to that. Now I have a reason to look forward to the holidays because that's when I think it'll happen. <laughs> uh, but yeah. but what, when, when people, you have had a chance to go out and do a, a bunch of signings, you went to the libraries, what are people, is there some consistent refrains that people are saying to you when you talk about the book or when they read the book? Yeah, I think, it, and it's going to be the same for you. You're going to hear uh, this, this thought about history and about looking backwards uh, and a want and need to get back to our founding principles. And uh, there's just this, this sense that we're kind of all over the place right now as a country, uh, politically obviously pulled apart. Uh, but as you have written and, and I've written, we've been through very dark times in our country's history. And um, and touching base with the past sometimes helps you deal with the present. I hear you get a perspective on where we've been to know where we are. Uh, Brett Baer, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Have a great show. A watch special report tonight at 6 Eastern. Go get him, Brett. All right, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. A lot to talk about. I want to go off the off year election, see what you can read between the lines. I want to go over some of those polls that show Trump uh, trouncing again today. Ivanka Trump is in Manhattan, ridiculously having to testify about the business in which she is not implicated. They said statute of limitations ran out; she had nothing to do with it. But they're bringing her in in the hope she'll say something bad about her dad. This is like a soap opera to these people. It's a simple judge who decided before the trial that the president, the former president, was guilty. It's helping him in the polls. 
But I know the Trump team is worried about their business, and they shouldn't be. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Look, we're a year out from the election, and so polling at this stage is not predictive. I think we can look at some of the, you know, historical data around this, whether it's President Obama, you know, this time in 2011, headlines is Obama toast and other things. Um, You know, past presidents have faced similar sort of, um, you know, experiences, but they've gone off to win re-election, and we know that um, that's really the trajectory that we're on. Listen, I, I appreciate the analysis. I love it. I mean, it's almost like watching a great postgame show after a big game. This is an off-year election, but uh, outside the governor of Mississippi, there was uh, nothing really good for Republicans in this. And for governor, I think Glenn Youngkin got a huge body blow in this, too. But about Barack Obama and using that analogy or going back to uh, uh, Bill Clinton and how they tried to vilify uh, Bob Dole after all the scandal with Monica Lewinsky— Here's David Axelrod qualifying the two analogies. Cut five. We had lousy polling numbers at this time in our campaign in 2011 when I was working for Barack Obama. But the two things that are different are that Obama was 50 and not 81. And uh, and uh, we didn't have Donald Trump on the other side. See, what do you think, uh, Allison and Eric? What do you think? He, I heard this soundbite already. When he says, I didn't have Donald Trump on the other side. Are they insulting Trump or complimenting Trump? Meaning Trump is more formidable than Mitt Romney? Is that what they're saying? I think so. That he, you know, or it's, you know, more bombastic. His base is so strong. Well, like, why did, he, why did they leave it like that? They didn't have Donald Trump on the other side. Because some people, the Democrats seem to think that Donald Trump is an albatross. If they say that. But I'm saying, is this was this just a compliment? Eric, do you have an opinion? What do you think? No, I think he, they're acknowledging that Trump is a threat. Interesting. So almost complimented him? Yeah. Backhanded maybe, but yeah. Cut six. There's just a lot of concern about the age issue. And uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? Time is fleeting here, and this is probably the last moment uh, for him to do that check. And it's 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 probably good if he does. I mean, you know what? Even if he was 60, I think he'd be vulnerable. But his point is, if he came up with a good strategy, he can do a bunch of, you know, and barnstorm a bunch of key battleground states, it might be different. So CNN did a poll. Among younger people, uh, younger than 35, 48% support Trump, 47 Biden. Political independence, 45 Trump, Biden 41. Black voters, 73 to 23. What's significant about that? CBS had a 22, and Trump only got 8% in 2020. Latino voters, 50-46. Trump only down by four. That was supposed to be the future of the Democratic Party, the expanding Hispanic base. But they've seen enough, and they don't like what they see, and they're coming the other way. Latino voters, as I mentioned, women uh, doubles Trump, 63 to 31. Men split about evenly. Trump, 49. Biden, 46. Uh, the chance you would vote for Joe Biden in 2024, 45%. Uh, yes, 51% say no chance. For Trump, 49% say yes. 48% say no chance. 
independents in a poll I saw yesterday have RFK getting the majority of the independent vote. It is going to be crazy. But, you know, I know negative ads are part of the political process. But what's going to really divide the country, they are going to make Donald Trump seem like the worst tyrant in history and going to destroy the fabric of the nation. Going to be images of January 6th in black and white and uh, and death and destruction. Uh, and so he's going to start wars and they're going to talk about um, not qualified for office and converting with Vladimir Putin to win another election. It's really damaging to the country as opposed to this is the tweet. This is what he did. This is how he would act. This You could have negative ads, but they're going to go to the utter extreme because they have no choice. Hypothetical matchup between President Biden and Nikki Haley, 49, excuse me, yeah, 49-43, Nikki Haley. She beats him every time, four to six. Hypothetical matchup between Biden and DeSantis, 1,200, these are all registered voters, doesn't mean likely, uh, DeSantis by two. I was surprised at this number, it's actually higher than I thought. Same poll, President Biden's approval number, 39%. I I can't believe it's 39% when you see his performance, when you see his policies. Extremely important for 2024. For for all of you out there, tell me what your top three are. For the American public in this poll, 66% number one is the economy. 57% said voting rights and election integrity. 52% said crime. 52% said gun. 50% said immigration. 43 foreign policy. 42 abortion. 31 climate change. And then 17% transgender. That's interesting. So these are polls that are pretty bad. And what I think they're deciding and looking around, the Democrats are saying, we did so well again when we weren't supposed to, midterms in here, even though they lost the House. I think we got a Biden problem. We don't have a policy problem. I think they got both. But their Hail Mary, sadly, is abortion for all the wrong reasons. You listen to Brian Kilmeade Show. More calls next. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, We hear more and more of these nightmare stories, in my view, on college campuses. You see all of them rallying to the cause of the Palestinians and Hamas. I got another one of this country's oldest colleges, Union College, uh, right by where I think Governor of uh, the former governor, Secretary of State Seward, went there in Schenectady, New York. Well, this professor has been there for a while, Stephen Burke, professor of Holocaust and Jewish studies at Union College in upstate New York. He was confronted by Aya Osman. Uh, she is a student, a junior there, on October uh, 18th. Osman was confronted by Stephen Burke, a professor of Holocaust and Jewish studies. They got into an altercation after Burke questioned Osman about a social media post that said, anyone who volunteers and attends a bingo night fundraiser to benefit Israeli victims of terror gets a free guaranteed spot in hell. And then when confronted, she basically admitted it. Here's the story and my interview with the outraged professor and a college that didn't stand by him. Union College in upstate New York, right in Schenectady, facing major backlash from student and alums. Listen to this. An undergrad said attendees at a recent pro-Israeli benefit were, quote, guaranteed a spot in hell. Our next guest, a longtime Jewish studies professor, had a heated dialogue with the student after she accused him of misrepresenting her views. The professor asking, quote, 
You said the people who attended that rally should burn in hell. Do you stand by that? To which he replied, I do. Professor Stephen Burke is here now. Professor, your thoughts when you got that retort? I was very surprised, I, I, I must tell you. Uh, but there's a lot of hate out on campus. What really surprised me was the reaction of the administration. The vice president of academic affairs was in the audience. She heard it. She didn't do anything. At the end, she got up and made a, what I thought was a self-serving speech and uh, did not rebuke the student. And then uh, yesterday morning, the president of Union College issued a statement, a long letter, uh, supported by the chairperson of the, the chairwoman of the board of trustees, in which they actually conflated me with the student. They said they didn't condone what the student said, and they didn't condone what I had said uh, in rebuking the, in really rebuking the student. Uh, to me, it was absolutely amazing. Right. That they put me on. They put me on the same level as a student who. Uh, who had made that bigoted statement. And I want, you to, the, I, I, I want you to hear the statement from the college. They say, we don't condone the student's words. We also do not condone the manner in which the student was confronted in a public setting, nor how she has been portrayed in social or traditional media. Really? I, I think, to me, it's absolutely incredible. Look, we've learned a lot about how, how do you confront bigotry. What Edmund Burke said several centuries ago is right. The only thing for evil to triumph is when good men and now good women do nothing. They say nothing. I stood up. I confronted the student. I didn't confront the student. I didn't even name the student by name. She proudly got up and said, I was the one that made that statement. There's something wrong here. Uh, Union College is a fine institution. It really is one of the best liberal arts colleges in the United States. Our students are as good as anybody's. Good faculty. One of the oldest colleges in the country. Yeah, it's a very fine school. The administration really uh, let the ball go. I mean, they, they kept their eye off the ball. And I must tell you, the chair, the chairwoman of the Board of Trustees was my student. Her daughter was my student. They threw me under the bus. They threw me under the bus. Are they afraid, are they afraid of the students in general? Or do they agree with this pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas mindset and that the Jewish state had it coming? Or that the October 7th thing was not that bad? There's a lot of anti-Israeli sentiment out there, and faculties all across the country. I suspect there's a good deal of that at Union College as well. Uh, as for why they acted as they did, I don't know. Are they afraid? Are they lacking in intelligence? Are they lacking in sensitivity? Are they hostile towards Israel? I don't know the answer. When it comes to probing motivation, that's a very difficult thing. What's next for say, you, Professor? Professor, what's next for you? Are you going to continue? Are you going to bring this up in class? This, this story is not going away. This war is not close to the end. I will stand up for what I think is right. Israel is in the right here. Israel was attacked. Men, women, and children were burned alive. Women were raped. Children were killed. People were burned alive. Israel is in the right here. And while it is all right to say that you support the Palestinians, Whatever you want to say is fine. We live in a free marketplace of ideas. But what you can't say is that people should burn in hell. And as long as that goes on, I will stand up and fight. And I would ask the people out there, don't be frightened of bigotry. Don't be afraid. This is the United States of America. Gotcha. And you have to stand up. And at one last point, I'm going to say, when you say burn in hell, you know what that means to people who are Jewish and people who are sensitive here? We burned in hell. We burned in Auschwitz, Treblinka, Auschwitz, Helmlo, Sobobor, Maidana. We burned in hell. And we, damn it, we're not going to hear that again. And they put babies in ovens. 
So we can't forget that October 7th because that's on the video too. Uh, Professor, thanks for doing what you do. People out there, college has got to be stop being afraid of their students uh, and stand up to them, especially the ones that don't even understand what they're standing up for. And I think that's 99.9% .9 of the cases. They don't understand the history. Professor, thanks so much for being strong. All right, you just heard from Stephen Burke speaking out, and I hope his job is secure because he's doing the right thing, and I hopefully in that campus they sober up. Meanwhile, coming up straight ahead, the release of my book, Teddy and Booker T. Uh, there's a special on Fox Nation. I had a chance to interview two people who played a major role in the construction of the book, Bob Woodson, historian, and Ben Jealous, former president of the NAACP. Uh, that interview next. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, this is the week that Teddy and Booker T came out. Been working on it for two and a half years. And there's a special on Fox Nation uh, that goes for an hour. And I've been working on that for a year. It did a fantastic job. The whole crew, Carrie, Monica, and, uh, and John Case. And now it is out, available, downloaded. It's about Teddy Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington, how they came together for a special cause. Here's a preview and a review of the entire story in about four minutes. As America was moving into the 20th century, we were desperate for civil rights leaders to emerge to put us back on the Reconstruction track. This is everyone trying to figure out how do we build our community back? How do we get out of the challenges of the Civil War and come together? Enter Booker T. Washington and Theodore Roosevelt. Early in life, few saw future greatness in either man. After all, Washington, born a slave. And for T.R., fortunate to even survive. He suffered from asthma. Those days, it was a terrifying disease. So he had these adversities, some of them life-threatening. Soon, Teddy was not only surviving, but thriving. He built up his body and never stopped building his intellect. He would become a leader at Harvard, leaped into New York State politics, would become New York City's first police commissioner, assistant secretary of Navy, a Rough Rider war hero, New York governor, vice president, and president. Just about a dozen miles from where Teddy Roosevelt lived, Booker T. Washington's last house. And whatever you think of this house behind me is dramatically different from how Booker T. Washington grew up. He was born in slavery in 1856. After the Civil War, his family worked in the salt mines. So he was early on taught how to be self-sufficient and how to be a good worker. He would find his way to Hampton College, quickly impressing. And when it was time for his latest mentor, College President General Samuel Armstrong, to recommend a man to run a new college in Alabama, he knew exactly where to turn. Tuskegee University. This is where Booker T. Washington began his quest to become a national and global figure. He was named president of this institution. All his students would build their minds and master a trade. He founded Tuskegee on the same principles he learned from Hampton, and that was on the head, the hand, and the heart. His goal was to figure out how can I have a shared conversation between all of these disparate groups. He was saying, let me tell you about some work that we're doing down in Alabama. A lot of white philanthropists, people with big ideas, who saw that Washington was doing a big idea. Vice President Roosevelt became keenly aware of Booker T. when he read his autobiography, Up From Slavery. The two would first meet April 1st, 1901. A partnership was born. He met with Booker T. Washington and was really impressed by him. Booker T. Washington is an extraordinary character. 
But their partnership would take a challenging turn soon after. October 16, 1901, President Teddy Roosevelt gets word that Booker T. Washington, his good friend, is in town. So he does what everyone would do, invites him over for dinner with his family. It's the first time in the history of the country that a black man was invited to dine with the President of the United States. My God, did holy hell break loose after that dinner. The South went haywire. They thought it was too much of a civil rights advance. Cartoonists lampooned the dinner as barbaric. Both men paid a political price for this. It did set both of them back. Then it begs the question as to what the value of those symbolic gestures is worth the price. They would still work together, but they'd have to be more cognizant of the challenges of their time. The legacy of these two men were not lost to John McCain after he lost the presidency to Barack Obama in 2008. A century ago, President Theodore Roosevelt's invitation of Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House was taken as an outrage in many quarters. America today is a world away from the cruel and prideful bigotry of that time. T.R. and Booker T., two indispensable Americans who defied the challenges of their time to push America ever closer to becoming a land of freedom, liberty, and equality for all. So I hope you have an idea what this is about. I know you know the name Booker T. I know you know of Teddy Roosevelt, one of our most famous, impactful presidents on the side of, side of, Mushmore, side of Mount Rushmore. But I also thought I'd bring in two experts to talk about the impact of these two men that we're feeling even today and what made them stand out. That's why I took an interview. I want to give you an interview now that I did on One Nation Saturday nights at 9 o'clock between Bob Woodson and Ben Jealous to get their different perspectives about what these two meant to America. You know, America has come a long way from the days of slavery when we first became a nation and Jim Crow in the early 20th century, always in a constant sense of getting better to become a more perfect union. But it's always healthy to go back and look at the people that led us through the most important time, difficult times. And that's what I try to do in my brand new book, Teddy and Booker T, how two American icons blazed a path for racial equality, showing how an affluent white guy in the North, lucky enough to survive childhood, had bad asthma and a black man. Born a slave, both became two of the most impactful Americans ever to live. Here's a preview of the special. The man was a genius. He was able to prove that the American dream is actually possible. That's what really catapulted him into the national stage because he said, if we work together, we can have our differences. I recognize you have a difference and I recognize I have a difference. But progress is mutual. And, yeah, you can catch the whole show. I've been shooting it for the last six months. I think you're going to love it. I love doing it and researching it. Uh, joining us now to expand on this, civil rights leaders in their own right. Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, a great historian in my view, and author of Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free, former NAACP president and the professor of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Ben Jealous. Uh, thanks, guys, for joining us. Ben, can you tell us what these two men meant for America at that time? Well, you know, they, they both stood for courage. And in the case of President Roosevelt, he was presiding over a country that was being torn apart by segregation. 1901 was a critical year for repealing a lot of the advances uh, made during Reconstruction officially in state constitutions, places like Virginia. And yet he was a man who had grown up in the Republican Party, grown up in the North, grown up in a time when Abraham Lincoln was the nation's hero, and who had qualms about racial discrimination. We know that because when he went to invite Booker T. Washington 
to dinner at the White House, he hesitated, worried that, that his color would be a problem, and then felt ashamed of himself and went ahead and invited Booker T. Anyways, and of course, as your book details, and as we know, uh, President Roosevelt played, paid a dear price uh, in right. newspapers across the country for inviting a black man to dinner. And, and Bob, we can go on forever, and you helped us out with the special, too, and thank you both. Uh, but, Bob, Booker T. Washington had every reason to be angry at America. He was born a slave, never knew who his dad was, never knew how to read and write. He almost forced his way into the success and impact that he had. Can you put in perspective how important he was? I think he was a trailblazer. He gives new meaning to the, the phrase, by any means necessary. Here he was, seven years old, uh, slavery, walked behind a wagon for 100 miles to, with his mother to meet up with his brothers and his father. Um, he could have very easily, when he finished college, moved to Harvard and, and, and tossed stink bombs about racial discrimination. But he, instead, he remained in the South and, and built an institution that liberated thousands of blacks from the slavery of ignorance. Um, and, but he, and he did so uh, with the sword of Damocles of race over his head, that any minute uh, racists could have stormed in and lynched him. But even in the face of that threat, he stayed and, and built that institution. He also lost uh, two wives, uh, leaving him. I mean, the man suffered in uh, immeasurable uh, trauma in his life, but yet he built an institution. Right. And when he died, he left a well-endowed university. He did. And I went there. And it is better than you could even imagine. It's so impressive. They keep their history there. Hey, Ben, before I uh, go, I want you to, I want you to uh, expand on this quote. Booker T. With few exceptions, the Negro youth must work harder and perform his tasks even better than a white youth in order to secure recognition. Out of the hard work and unusual struggle, though, which he is compelled to pass, he gets a strength of confidence that one misses whose pathway is comparatively smooth by reason of birth and race. How do you interpret that? What he's talking about is grit. And what he's paraphrasing, and what he's paraphrasing is every black mother who has told their child they're going to have to be twice as good to get half as much. Uh, and the reality is that that advice has done a lot of us well. Um, you know, when your mom tells you that you just got to compete better than the next guy, uh, you take her seriously and tends to put you in a good spot. I suspect his mom was similar. Yeah, I, I do. And he just said, yeah. when you come out, Bob, he said, when you come out of my college, you're going to be smart, but you're going to learn a trade. Because at this point in America, white people aren't going to hire you. So you've got to be invaluable for yourself. Your thoughts on that? He preached perseverance. He, he, he taught us that no one is defined by the worst of he's ever been. That resilience, perseverance, and the presence of oppression really defines what a person is. And you should never be defined by your external barriers. And, and his whole life epitomizes those principles of resilience. People are motivated to change and improve when they're giving examples of victories to accomplish instead of always reminding them mm -hmm. of, of uh, injuries to be avoided. And when you see that, that uh, powerful president and this powerful African-American uh, look each other in the eye and treat each other like equals, I can imagine how many thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions said, I could do anything. Uh, I could do, you know, I am equal. And it was hard wrapping that, uh, your head around that back in those days, Ben. And final thought about where we're at today? Yeah, you, you know, 
your book, one of the things that I really like about it is that it teaches us the value of unlikely friendships in transforming our society. And these are times when so many families are torn apart by politics. Yep. I think that's a good lesson for all of us to relearn. All right. I'm honored you guys joined me. Thanks so much. I appreciate the inspiration of being on the back of the book, guys. All right. I hope you enjoy it. Got a sense of the book. I just think it's time to, to highlight some great Americans and show you why we're an exceptional nation. And it's because of people like that come from nowhere to bring us everywhere. I'll be in Red Bank, New Jersey at night talking about all my history books together. Ponte Vedra on the 10th. That's Friday night. The Villages on the 11th. Vero Beach on the 12th. On the 14th of Madison, Connecticut. And then after the Patriot Awards, Brentwood, Tennessee. Then to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Madison, Alabama. Montgomery, Alabama. BrianKillney.com for all of it. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for listening. We're coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Ben Dominic standing by. Rich Lowry at the bottom of the hour trying to make sense of the off-year elections. Also, following the other news, we see the Donald Trump trial taking place again. Theatrics only. Ivanka Trump forced to come and testify about the Trump organization because Letitia James wants to be in front of the camera. This attorney general with crime running rampant in this city, with the sanctuary status status still in place, with illegal immigrants taking up every major hotel. She sits in court all day. If anyone voted for her, they should just be forced to leave this state. So Ivanka Trump, who is not implicated in any of this, just bring it in here to put more I guess, inconvenience to the Trump team. Nobody thinks this is legitimate. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Is the White House's view that these actions should be condemned, the pulling of the pulling down of them? Is that peaceful protest to pull I, that down or should I, you not be I'm just that? not going to go into uh, specifics on that particular thing. She had to walk that back later. Unbelievable. You can't weigh in on people ripping hostage pictures off a pole. Israel at war. More pro- progress on the ground. Pressure to pause increasing. Protests against Israel only increasing as well. Number two. The only issue where Democrats have a lead is abortion. Mm-hmm. So guess what Glenn Youngkin does? He makes abortion the right. centerpiece of his election campaign in Virginia. It is a dereliction of duty. Republicans had better wake up. Off your election, way off for Republicans, still plagued by messaging on abortion, outraised by Dems in most major, uh, m- most razor, major races. Number one. They still don't like Joe Biden. His approval rating in the exit poll in Ohio last night was 41%. We asked the question in the exit poll, should Joe Biden run for re-election? Three quarters of voters said no, Joe Biden should not run for re-election. We asked the same question of Donald Trump. A majority said he shouldn't run for a second term either. But it's a lot worse for the 81-year-old. 2024, pressure builds on Joe to bow out. More polls show Trump catching additional steam as the third debate takes place tonight without him. And at least two of the candidates also beating Biden head-to-head will discuss it with Ben Dominich. Ben, he's a Fox News contributor, editor-at-large for The Spectator World and host of the Ben Dominich podcast. Uh, Ben, your thoughts about first the off-year election? Sure. Uh, can I ask you, Brian, who was that clip from, the person you just played there talking about Virginia? Steve uh, Kornacki. Okay. 
Uh, oh, uh, the second I, one was Steve Hilton. No, the second one. Second yeah, Steve I was going to say, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that, uh, I don't mean to speak ill of, of Steve. I've been on his show before. He has no idea what he's talking about. I, I mean, he has, absolutely has no idea what he's talking about. I've lived in Virginia for the last, uh, let's see, I guess uh, since I was 11 years old. Um, I've you know, been through every election. Uh, Glenn Youngkin didn't make abortion the centerpiece of his campaign. That's just false. Uh, that's just not the case. Uh, Democrats wanted it to be the centerpiece of the campaign, and it's why they both, you know, held the the, uh, the Senate that they wanted to hold on to. Uh, it's why they gained in the House of Delegates just a couple of seats. Uh, but frankly, it was it was pretty much Democrats holding serve. You know, at the same time, Republicans, you know, did really well. I would say in in a number of different school board races across the the county, uh, including uh, knocking out a number of critical people in Loudoun County who uh, have become known nationally for what they did. But it's simply false to say that Glenn Youngkin, you know, made abortion the centerpiece of anything having to do with this. You know, that was the Democrat talking point. In fact, Youngkin took a very moderate position and one which polls pretty well in Virginia, which is the 15-week ban. He was not pushing for anything extreme on the subject. You know, there I think a lot of outsiders who swing into these off-year elections who read a lot of things into what go- goes on who don't really pay attention to the previous years. Ed Gillespie lost over the abortion issue when he was going up against Mark Warner. You saw in, in the past, you know, People like Ken Cuccinelli, who are more conservative on the on the life issue, also go down to defeat over the abortion issue. It's been a problem for Republicans in Virginia going back for more than a decade in terms of navigating a state that is simply more socially liberal uh, than and becoming more and more so as you have all these bureaucrats in the state, uh, you know, as, as government expands and the like. Uh, it's something that's been a real problem for Republicans to overcome. In fact, you know, as you know, the, the one moment that the abortion issue played in their favor was that Ralph Northam comment on the radio about the issue that ended up being a huge talking point for President Trump in his debate against Hillary Clinton uh, and really took the issue off the table for a couple of cycles. Look, the Glenn Youngkin effort to try to win back, win over the, the state legislature uh, was very expensive. It was something he really threw himself into, but he still ended up getting outspent by Democrats. And that's what you see across the board in every single major competition, with the exception of Mississippi, uh, Republicans got outspent by Democrats. And they have to come to grips with the fact that part of being this new, more working class, more diverse coalition that has been brought into the party, you know, under Donald Trump's leadership, but under the leadership of other populists as well, means you're dealing with small dollar donors who are, you know, less likely, less pro- they have less propensity to come out in off-year elections. It makes you a more competitive party in presidential years and a less competitive party in midterm and off-year elections. And Republicans have to recognize that fact because they're, they basically swapped places with the Democrats who used to be, you know, the low propensity voters and they had good presidential years but they lost to Republicans in midterms and off years, now it's flipped around. Republicans have to figure out how to motivate those voters to come out. And I'll tell you this, you know, I'll relate the uh, just an interaction that I have. There's a contractor friend of mine who I run into at the local hardware store and at the local watering hole regularly. I ran into him the other day. He knew all about uh, the the confrontation that had happened in Arlington between a poll watcher and uh, and a Democrat, and, and he was asking me questions about different things, and uh, I thought thought were going to happen uh, last night. You know, he's, he's a big fan of yours, Brian. Uh, and, and then at the end of our conversation, I said, oh, you know, uh, did you vote today? And he's like, ah, no, I, I was working a job I didn't have time to. 
Like that's a guy who probably didn't vote before 2016, but Republicans didn't get him out. And I think that that's the thing that you have to you know deal with. That, that even if that people are paying attention on some level, even if they're on the side that says Joe Biden sucks, the economy isn't good. You've got to get them motivated to go out to vote, and Republicans haven't done a good job of that. Right. They tried the early voting. He said, "Let's get the early voting going." He was very aggressive with that. Was Glenn Youngkin? But let me ask you: with the 15 weeks, that was on the books, not challenged. Oh, no, that's what he was advocating for in terms of right. saying, you know, he, he said he said, you know, if if we have something like that, you know, I would uh, sign a 15 week gotcha. you know, ban if it came to like this. Uh, Virginia has currently essentially no limits. We're not uh, we we didn't have something on the books uh, that was going to be uh, that was that went into place post Dobbs. Uh, so in it's in, it's a uniquely sort of blue state situation. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the rhetoric and the, what we saw from Democrat ads that just deluged uh, everything in the closing days. Uh, was it was all abortion, 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 abortion extremism against all of these different uh, you know Senate and uh, and House candidates, uh, some of whom still you know ended up uh, being able to pull it off and win. But that was the issue that Democrats hammered, hammered home because they didn't want to talk about crime and they didn't want to talk about the economy. And so look, yeah. uh, you know, I I think I think Brian. We, you, you can't. You can overread tea leaves from off years because they're weird. They're funky. You know, I don't think that Daniel Cameron is a bad politician. I think he ran into a really popular mo- a guy who tracks as moderate, even if he's actually to the left. And Andy Bashir. Um, you yeah. know, but it's 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 one of these things in Kentucky. Uh, well, but one let, of these let's things. Uh, let me let me yeah, let, sure. let's just let's stay with Virginia for a second. So sure. I want you to just play a little of uh, Steve Kornacki and tell me what you think of his analysis because Ohio did have abortion on the books. Yes, cut twelve. And this is a state that a year ago easily reelected Mike DeWine as governor. This is a state that, by a 13-point margin, has now put in the state constitution the legal right to an abortion. They did add, and I think this has implications for how this question is adjudicated at the ballot box going forward, the proponents of Issue 1 in Ohio did something that proponents of enshrining abortion rights in state law or constitution haven't done in the big blue states. They didn't do it in California. They didn't do it in Virginia. Vermont. In those states, they simply put the right in the state constitution. Big blue states, they passed easily. They put no language in there allowing for any kind of restriction. Proponents of this recognize that the politics of Ohio, a reddish state, once upon a time a swing state, were a little different. So they added language saying that restrictions can be imposed uh, after the point of fetal viability, about 22 to 24 mm-hmm. weeks. And the, the idea here that they had was if that can fly in Ohio, then roll the calendar ahead to 2024. Is that the model that will be used as they try to advance this in red states and swing states? And I think that's what you're seeing in South Carolina, in Arizona, uh, st- Florida. Right. I got st- it. So, so, so I, I thought 15 weeks was the European standard. He's saying that in Ohio, they were, they said you could revisit this at 22. That's... Well, you know, look. First off, I think Steve is a brilliant guy, and I've known him for a, for a long time. I don't disagree uh, with his analysis entirely, but I do think that a lot more of this has to do with messaging and being outspent. Just the basics of politics. Meaning, like if you've seen the ads, the ads that they ran in Ohio were so effective. They, you know, they leaned heavily into getting religious figures in uh, in these uh, Democrat ads, uh, you know, pushing this issue. And frankly, I think being very, you know, playing 
games with it the way that they talk about it. But look, you know, I, I just think that the, the, the pro-life cause focused on winning in the, in the legal battle uh, for, forever. You know, they focused on the courts. They focused on the presidency. They focused on the Senate. OK, that's over now. Now it's a state issue. Now it's a local issue. Now it's something that happens where, you know, every single Republican politician all the way down needs to know how to talk about this issue. And they need to know where they stand. And I don't think that they've figured that out yet. And I think that these right. state ballot issues, by the way, are, are going to be a real th- – this is different than the politicians. When a politician's running, he can get better about talking about this subject. She can get better about talking about this subject. But I think that when these state ballot issues come up, the, the way that weasel words happen and, and, and the way that they have been mismanaged in terms of different things that have been put out there, particularly the Kansas example, you know, I think that that's something that the pro-life movement really has to get right. And Republicans have to understand this is the new reality. It's not going back. You can't tell me some you know, fond sort of rewind of, well, we want more of those Mitt Romney voters back. We want more of those Liz Cheney voters back, uh, you know, who find this stuff distasteful. They're not coming back. The, you know, the, these are you know, the, the resistance sort of focused people, you know, have left the, the Republican Party now. The people who care about January 6th and such, they're out of the Republican coalition now. There are a whole group of new people coming in, and you've got to figure out how to motivate them and talk to them. And that's the priority, I think. So abortion rights is going to be – they're looking to get it on Nevada? Arizona, Colorado, yep, yep. South Dakota. Yeah. So yeah. the other thing which is interesting is how they went after Cameron, who lost, I think, 52-47. This is what uh, Ronald McDaniel gave us a heads up here on Monday, that David uh, Daniel Cameron did not answer this ad. There was one where DA said a nine-year-old got pregnant, Daniel Cameron would make that kid have the baby. And then there was this. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. So he had just ignored that. And according to experts, it was devastating enough to to decide the you know, well, I, I, I certainly I certainly think that that campaign, uh, you know, misjudged the situation. But again, I think that's why you have to respond to that. You have to push back against that and say, you know, I'm just for, I'm for the same exceptions that have been you know, part of the Republican platform since, you know, since before Ronald Reagan. You know, and this and that's the kind of thing that I think, you exactly. know, every single Republican needs to be prepared to talk about. You can't run away from the issue. You, you know, you can't. And if you do, then you allow your opponent to define you. And the other thing that I want to say about this is Andy Sheer, there are a lot of people who responded well to him when he's dealt with disasters over the past couple of years, uh, and he has the luxury, frankly, of having a Republican legislature that has knocked down his most extreme things. His vetoes get overruled all the time, including his veto on transgender policy and the like. So because of that, I think a lot of the voters kind of felt like, oh, well, you know, I kind of like this Bashir guy. His tracks is pretty moderate, even if, you know, personally, I don't think he is. He's kind of got that Josh Shapiro thing going for him which I think is going to, you know, make a lot of them, you know, kind of get a lot of attention uh, come, you know, 2028 potentially as national can- uh, candidates for the Democrats. But but look, you know, you have to respond. I think that's the real lesson yep. from this. For any politician, you can't dodge the issue. You have to be prepared to talk about it. You have to say strongly where you stand and you have to push back against the idea. I, I do not believe for one second 
uh, Daniel Cameron, uh, you know, would, if this person came up to him, if the girl in that ad came up to him and asked him that question, that he would just run away. I'm sure he would, well, you know, as any politician would, but as any human being would. Does, would does he have exceptions? Explain his position. The, I mean, my, under, my understanding is that he has the standard exceptions that virtually every Republican okay. candidate has. And that's, you know, that's always been my understanding of his position. You know, I doubt, I doubt that there is anyone out there, you know, really at this point, you know, who's in, you know, American, uh, in, in American politics. Uh, who is going to be able to avoid this question, though, going forward. And they've been able to escape it at the state and local level, but you can't do it anymore. That's where this fight is going to be, and it's going to be there for the foreseeable future, so get used to it. So, uh, so as you know, CNN did a poll, got similar results as CBS, head-to-head with Trump, Haley, and DeSantis. They beat Biden. Haley beats him by six. Trump wins by four. Uh, DeSantis wins by two. Black voters favor Biden 73-23, Pretty substantial considering Trump only got 8% of the vote last time. Independence, 45-41 Trump. Younger voters, 48-47 Trump. Uh, Latino voters, 50-46, a substantial increase. Trump loses, but only by four. Your reaction to these series of polls that, that so has the, Trump beating Biden? So, for, you know, first off, I, I think it's really telling that all three of them beat him. Uh, because that, to me, sort of says, well, what, you know, okay, let's let's evaluate who's got the, the best shot here. But I also think it, it sort of says that's how bad Joe Biden really is in terms of the Democratic coalition. Now, do I think that there's going to be a scenario where a Republican can actually get to 20 percent of the black vote? I really doubt that, Brian. I just think that there's, yeah. a, there's a natural coming home. But what I do think is a huge problem for Biden is this younger vote community. Gotcha. Because – because they're the less motivated ones, how is he going to motivate them to come out? Right. You know, for, for this old guy that they are tired of, I think that's a huge problem for Democrats. It's why they're going to lean more and more into this abortion issue. It's why okay. Republicans need to know how to push back. Ben Dominich, thanks so much. Check out his podcast, the Ben Dominich Podcast. Back with your calls in a moment. Then Rich Lowry, busy day. Brian Kilman. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. When the attack on October 7th in Israel happened from Hamas, what was your reaction to that? Let's wait and see what happened. What was my first reaction? My second reaction was, how the hell did the Israelis not know this was going to happen? And I'm still a little bit down that rabbit hole. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, didn't didn't the Israeli army in those 11, 10 or 11 camps hear the bangs when they blew up whatever they had to blow up to get across the border? Mm-hmm. There's something very fishy about that. Do you think what Hamas did on October 7th can be justified? Well, we don't, A, we don't know what they did do, but do was it justified for them to resist the occupation? Yeah. Another reason to not like Pink Floyd, never liked them. That is Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, doubting everything. Uh, he's a whack job and then doesn't believe anything. I, listen, it might, it, there are some ignorant people in this world that think that didn't happen, but those are marginal. This guy's got access to everything he wants. He could uh, get the best source in the world. He could call up and get a guy in the Knesset on the phone, or he can go call probably a member of Hamas, judging by his, uh, uh, his tendencies. But then, how many people like Roger Waters? What an embarrassment he is. Think twice before you download anything that he ever wrote or sang. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show, Rich Lowry, where the Republicans go from here and beyond, and also the latest in 
from Israel. Don't move. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. They still don't like Joe Biden. His approval rating in the exit poll in Ohio last night was 41%. We asked the question in the exit poll, should Joe Biden run for re-election? Three quarters of voters said no, Joe Biden should not run for re-election. We asked the same question of Donald Trump. A majority said he shouldn't run for re-election, uh, shouldn't run for a second term either, but not nearly as high a number as said that about Joe Biden. And so that's the electorate that by a 56-43 margin just passed issue one. So if you have, uh, you have former Congressman Ryan, you have David Axelrod, saying he should not run. He does have an opponent now in the primary, if he ever does a primary. That is uh, that is another network, very friendly to Joe Biden, MSNBC, Steve Kornacki, saying he shouldn't run. Will it make a difference? Rich Lowry joins us now, editor of National Review. Uh, and Rich, what do you think? Does, does some of this Democratic uh, consternation and worry, could that affect Joe Biden's decision? No, I, I don't think he's going to drop out because David Axelrod or Tim Ryan says so. And, and Axelrod's kind of backed off uh, what he said and um, said, you know, in no way was he calling for Joe Biden to drop out. So he's always wanted this job. There's there's really no point of leverage to get him out of the job unless someone serious primaries him and wins or embarrasses him. And that doesn't seem in the often. So they're just going to uh, they're going to stick it out, you know, hope. Trump's the nominee, and that, that can rough up Trump, and he gets convicted of a felony, and that makes a difference next year, et cetera. But they, I mean, they're trying to get this sputtering jalopy over the finish line that could stall out at any point. It's enormous risk for their party, enormous risk for the country. Yeah, here is Tim Ryan. Cut three. The whole country wants to move on, and I, I think that it would be uh, the right thing to do for the president to not run. What's in the best interest of the country here? And I, I don't mean to be so frank. I love Joe Biden. He's done a great service to this country. But now it's time for us to just take the next step. <laughs> so they want him out. So, I mean, that Tim Ryan's always been, you know, he's not, not necessarily been a mainstream Democrat. But Axelrod's got a little bit more power. He was part of the Obama team. And, you know, if Barack Obama didn't want him to say it, I don't think he would have said it. Yeah, you know, uh, if you if you look at Andy Bashir last night, I don't know whether you watched his victory speech. Like, look at this guy. You know, he's young, fairly uh, good looking. You know, with it, can give a good speech. Sounds sort of centrist. Like a guy like that would would probably win easily next year if they were running someone like that, except for Joe Biden. But again, you got two problems. Biden's in there. There's no way of getting him out. One, two. Even if he gets out. Uh, a, there's a strong chance that Kamala Harris would be the nominee, and that's not going to you know, be any better. So they're kind of stuck. So they're, they're just going to kind of grind it out. Um, they tell themselves, you know, if they tell everything um, positive that if Biden does, it, the polls will magically turn around. And look, there's a year things can change, but he's not going to get any younger. The economy maybe gets better, but there's no guarantee, and the world and the border are disasters as well. So, I mean, Biden is almost as weak as an incumbent possibly could be. Maybe the weakest incumbent we've seen since Jimmy Carter or Richard Nixon after Watergate. So, Governor, uh, you know, it's interesting is because you have uh, Governor Gavin Newsom running around the world, literally looking like a candidate. 
you have a situation where Governor Cuomo, disgraced as he is, on with Bill Maher saying, if I was still governor, I'd probably run against Joe Biden. He should not be running. And then listen to what Senator Fetterman said. Right now, there are two. There are two additional Democrats <laughs> running for Pennsylvania. Excuse me, running for president right now. One, one is a congressman from Minnesota. The other one is the governor of California. They're both running for president, but only one had the guts to announce it. This is so much uh, Democratic <laughs> infighting, it's hard for me to keep up. Do you believe this? Yeah, you know, I have to say, the last three weeks or so, I've developed strange new respect for John Fetterman, who I've had no, no use for. But he's absolutely right about Newsom. He's been great on Israel, right? He's put up these kidnapped posters outside his office. He's uh, been hell on Menendez and how corrupt he is. So he's kind of shown a side of, side of himself I wasn't aware of. But, yeah, clearly this is what Newsom's doing, right? He, he, it's a shadow campaign for president, just uh, hanging out there, very pro-Biden, except, you know, if, if something happens to Biden, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll happen to be here, willing to serve my party and my country. Yeah, so it would be interesting. What do you take away from yesterday's elections when the governorship went to Bashir again, the Democrat in the red state, when you see the abortion uh, rights bill pass uh, in – uh, in Ohio, when you see the Glenn Youngkin lost the House and did not uh, did not flip the Senate and did not win that uh, did not keep the House in Virginia, what do you think about this? It's it's uh, unsettling. Um, you know, I don't think it was a debacle. Not shocking that Bashir won. Would have been great if Cameron had won instead, obviously. And you know, the Virginia result it was going to be close one way or the other, and it just tipped the wrong way. Uh, and the Ohio loss. I mean, this for pro-lifers. I'm very pro-life. We we got to show the ability to defeat one of these things somewhere, sometime, How? someplace, How? and it just hasn't happened. How? Um, I I don't know. I honestly don't know. Some of these uh, ballot measures, especially the one in Ohio, you know, it gets kind of vague and muddied up because they include a lot of stuff in there that's not directly related to abortion. But I think pro-lifers is no choice other than finding kind of a, a compromise position on restrictions. Uh, that you think is uh, politically defensible and defending it. There's no ducking and covering um, and, uh, you know, ignoring this issue. You have to sort of take it head on and, uh, you know, have all the exceptions, as, as Trump and others talk about their right, that those are very important, and then just have the long view. But in the short term, there's no doubt it is it has hurt the party. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, the, you, you caught the bus, and now you don't know what to do with it, and the American <laughs> people are all about freedom not less uh, less about the baby and the, the life of the baby and more about how dare you tell me what to do? How dare you make me leave the state? So somehow a party that was nothing but repression, get that vaccine. You better stay home. Mm-hmm. You better wear that mask. You cannot go to school. The other party, make your own decision on the mask. Make your own decision on the vaccine. Open up those schools. That's the party that's been labeled one of repression. They lost that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I, I think most most people favor some form of restriction on abortion. The thing is, if the question is, is it going to be banned or is it going to be allowed, allowed is going to win. Right. If you can make the debate, well, you know, are we going to have a 20-week ban or a 15-week ban? Well, then that's, depending on the, the, the time and the place, that's a, that's a survival or a winnable debate. But you got to get in on that, that territory, and mm-hmm. Democrats have just succeeded in betraying Republicans as favoring the most extreme positions on this issue, even though the, the Democratic position, you know, 
um, you know, basically no restrictions whatsoever is is not popular either. Uh, it isn't. Uh, so let's go to the Israel war. And KJP was asked, how do you feel about them ripping posters off poles of hostages? Listen to our answer. Cut 24. Is the White House's view that these actions should be condemned, the pulling of the pulling down of them, or that that's a form of peaceful protest? Look, I, I have I've sort of kind of seen the reporting here and there. I think it was from last week, There's right? There's been like 30 million videos that have gone around. No, I know. I hear you. Threat. I hear you. I'm just not going to. Uh, not going to. Okay? I'm not okay? going. Is that peaceful protest to I, pull that down, or should I, you not be? Doing I'm just that? not going to go into uh, specifics on that particular thing. To be clear, it's deeply concerning that people would be pulling I'm these things down. I'm just saying, when it, as it relates to a lot of reporting out there about violent protests and threats. What is wrong with her? Yeah, it's it's really disturbing. There, there's one good thing she said uh, after October 7th when she hit back at the squad and said, you know, they, what they're saying is wrong. And then ever since then, they've clearly been scared of the fact that there's some minority of Democrats out there who, who are radically anti-Israel and de facto pro-Hamas, and they don't want to offend them. You know, they're not in exactly the same place those people are, but they don't want to offend them. So that this, this tearing down of posters, I wrote a column about it earlier in the week, it's not the biggest thing in the world, but I find it so disturbing. What happened to our country that we live in a place now where people find these controversial and hateful and can't just stand just to walk by them, you know, and do nothing, even if they don't like them, just walk by them, but they can't bring themselves to do it. It's, it's, this wouldn't have happened in America 15, 20, 30 years ago, and it's a really yeah. uh, disturbing change. You know, there's times where you don't want to speak for the president. You can speak for the president there. The president is against hostage-taking, hostage-holding, Everyone is worried about their condition, and they put pictures up of their relatives or friends or people who share the same religion, and people are just ripping it down. Well, I don't get. So this is what Peter Alexander did who asked the question. He was uh, like I am. I was offended when I heard it. And he said, uh, would you take that question back? And he asked the White House, do you want to take that question back, take a swing at that question? And they said, oh, yeah, to clarify as a result of the Hamas terrorist attacks, communities and families are grieving. For the past month, the families of those who have been taken hostage have felt agony. Tearing down pictures of their loved ones who are being held hostage by Hamas is wrongful, is wrong and, un- and hurtful. Wow. How long did that take? <laughs> yeah. Peter I mean, is like, I'm just trying to save your career. Well, you know what they should do? I, I'm not... In, in favor, in theory, of using the, the White House kind of as a political bulletin board, the way, do, the way they do lighting it up with colors, you know, yeah. the, with certain causes. But the, someone should just tape one of those kidnap posters on the, the front door of the White House. And you don't need to say anything else after that. But ju- just that people find a poster with a, a picture of a baby or a mother who's been kidnapped with no propaganda attached, just saying this, this person was abducted, it's just – it's shocking. It's stunning and it's disgraceful. It is. And finally, how much longer can Netanyahu go forward with all this pressure for him to pause? Yeah, I think they're pretty determined. Um, You know, there might be a call for uh, in a way to kind of release some of the pressure is to have kind of localized pauses. It's not as though this is a a, a full-blown assault on all of Gaza with the same amount of uh, force and urgency at the same time. So I think that that would be one way to do it. But at the end of the day, it's Hamas that wants civilians there. There was a video yesterday, very telling, had had, – Gazans 
with white flags walking in, in southern Gaza past IDF tanks that were protecting them from Hamas, who, you know, we have reports Hamas has been gunning down people who are, are escaping because they, they want these uh, civilians as propaganda tools and as human shields. Well, when you build it, when you build a tunnel and a headquarters under a hospital, under a mosque, and you store uh, equipment and missiles in a Boy, uh, in a Boy Scout camp, I'm pretty sure you don't care about pedestrians or, and, yeah. or Palestinians. So yeah. that's been said. Do you think, Rich, in the long run, knowing that Hezbollah will only get stronger, do you think, now that they're on a war footing now, do you think it's in Israel's best interest to take on Hezbollah now? It's hard, hard to say without knowing you know, the, the real intelligence and the state of play. Certainly everyone, Israel and the U.S., has seemed consumed with deterring that threat for the time being and just dealing with the war um, in Gaza, which, which you know, it's hard to tell what's going on exactly, but it seems as though it's being effective. You know, they're, they're targeting these, these leaders, taking out the, the headquarters where they're, where they're based, and then eliminating fighters associated with them. And they, they seem to be very methodical about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then, you know, Hezbollah is a big – it's a much bigger challenge. I mean, they, they have a huge store of, of rockets. Um, so it's just – it's hard to know without, you know, being in the, the Israeli equivalent of the Situation Room uh, mm-hmm. how to make that call. All right. His, his name is Rich Lowry, editor of the National Review. Rich, thanks. Hey, thanks so much, Brian. You got it. Uh, exciting time. Uh, day after the last election before the big election, 2024. Uh, tonight's going to be a debate. We're also watching some of the proceedings with Ivanka. Now walking into court, no cameras inside, but she walked into court and will testify against a family. Letitia James trying to hold court as if people care what she has to say. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. It's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Daniel Cameron was a rising star in the Republican Party until he decided to throw his lot in with Donald Trump. I mean, let's face it, Donald Trump is political and electoral poison down ballot. Down ballot, he's in, his endorsement has led to Republican defeats in the House, uh, in the Senate, rather, and, and the House in 18. In 20, we lost the United States Senate and the White House. In 22, we underperformed miserably. And tonight, you're seeing us lose again. Um, Daniel Cameron made a huge mistake um, by embracing Donald Trump and selling his soul to him. Uh, That's what he did. And the voters of Kentucky, um, very red state, as you noted, uh, gave their verdict on politicians who sell their soul to Donald Trump. See, I just don't think uh, as much as I like Governor Christie, I think it's wrong. Uh, Daniel Cameron didn't run on Donald Trump's agenda. He ran as a Republican. He got the Mitch McConnell endorsement, late one from Donald Trump. But Donald Trump wasn't the one who told him the message that way on abortion. So I don't know why that's on Trump. He also, I think he endorsed the attorney general to replace Daniel Cameron, and that was successful. I think Mitch McConnell is the one who put him behind him. He's been a uh, protege. Listen, you could lose an election and still be a great politician. I mean, George H.W. Bush lost an election. I, I believe every major politician has lost an election. George W. Bush lost an election. Bill Clinton lost the governorship, came back and got it back, I think, with uh, I'm pretty sure we remember that. So uh, almost everybody, I mean, he can't be afraid to lose. But that's why you run. Maybe Daniel Cameron just found a better opponent and had no answer for that ad that I, we played earlier uh, for Ben Dominich. They talked about this 12-year-old girl who was being abused by her stepfather. 
And under Daniel Cameron, she said, be forced to have the baby. They should have hopped on right away and said, listen, I just saw this ad. I feel terrible for this girl. This is a true story. But let me just make this clear. I would not have had told you to have the baby. I don't know what people told you about me, but that's not what I would do. And then just explain yourself. I would call a press conference. Now, I heard it was bad. It's actually, I mean, it's, a, it's an effective ad, terrible story. I heard it was effective, but I didn't think that effective. I mean, it was great. It was great for Daniel. Uh, it, was, it was great that uh, it, was, it really was debilitating for Daniel Cameron. But it told the story and the big difference in very black and white. It needed to be answered. And that's what Ronna McDaniel had said. Uh, so that's pretty clear. The other thing to keep in mind, too, I just don't think Donald Trump was on the ballot with any of these candidates. He just wasn't. I mean, he, does he take credit for uh, Tate Reeves? I know he endorsed him. He won easily as another term for governor of Mississippi. I don't think he deserves credit for that. I don't know if he, Glenn Youngkin was totally on his own in Virginia. He was supposed to flip, hold the Senate and flip the House or vice versa. It didn't either. I mean, is that Donald Trump's fault? Governor Christie now should pivot to, being that he survived this long and he's doing so disciplined, now we should pivot to, all oh, this is the way I would do things. This is the way I would do it. Then if I was president, this is how I would have handled it. This is I'm a candidate. This is how I'm going to handle it. I'm telling you, uh, going after Trump now, to me, is totally unnecessary and I think ineffective. Just a quick note. Uh, Teddy and Booker T came out on yesterday. Thanks so much for everyone for going to get it. I think it's a great uh, story, American story of two great Americans who came from nowhere to lead us in one of our darkest times. Got got a lot of credit individually, but not what they did together. And it's a, there's a special on it on Fox Nation. I think you'll love it, especially if you like history and want just to learn a little bit more. Everyone's got blind spots in history or or weaknesses. Maybe this is yours. The segregated South. How many people want to do stories on it? Some people are accusing other people of uh, uh, trying to evade it or that shouldn't be in school books. I say just the opposite. Show everyone what happened, separate but equal, Jim Crow and all its uh, all its horror, and then how far we've come and the people that need credit for getting us there. So go to BrianKilme.com. And if you're in the New York, New Jersey area, go to the Vogel Thursday night. Till a handful of tickets left at the Vogel, 7.30. We'll talk about how America got great, a patriotic, motivational, inspirational night. I'll be on stage taking your questions, VIP opportunities, uh, get tickets. And you get a book with every purchase. Fox Nation sponsoring it, too. So you're going to get six free months if you go. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you are here. Martha McCallum coming up shortly. And in an effort to intimidate my next guest, I am standing. Uh, Tyrus is here. And it might work. It might not work. I'm not sure. Tyrus got a new book coming out. It's Just Tyrus, a memoir. And the upcoming book is called Nuff Said, available November 21st. You could pre-order it now. I have not gotten my copy, but all I need is a week. No, you have a copy because you're in the book. So there's a there's a is it coming my way? Yeah, I actually because I had originally planned, I have it in my office, but I did not want to take away. <laughs> I did not want to take away from from Teddy and Booker T. I did not want to take away from that. I'm assuming I will see you again. Yes. Before then, so today I could have shamelessly plugged my book when we're here to talk about your book, oh, no. and I did not do that. Well, so, I just think people. But I do know. have an autographed copy for you, as Thank mine you. was. Thank you. Uh, all all joking aside, man, I love this book. Oh, thanks. I absolutely love this book. Well, you're in the back. Yeah. Oh, we'll get into that later. I have a few issues with that. Um, it was a little crowded, but it's all good. Um, 
<clears throat> those of you who can't see at home, these are all blurbs. Now, presumably in the in the world of as I'm learning in the world of authorism and writing, it's supposed to be two, two. And you, when someone comes to you and asks you to write a blurb for them, it's a prestigious oh, honor. So you think there's too many? I, I just I know I wrote more than this. I thought my my paragraph was solid, but uh. Mm-hmm. You know, a bold retelling of a story of two great leaders with a strong message for modern-day Americans. Tyrus, professional wrestler and author of Just Tyrus. It just, the How do you feel about it, Allison? Allison, do you feel as though there was anything that I should wear? very, very vanilla. There was not New York Times bestselling or... Fox is uh, one of Fox's oh, favorite. Oh, so your title. It was just, I just felt it was a little, it was less, it's just kind so of very upset generic. about your title. Yeah, I'm not your concerned. Your title on the blur. I mean, blur. this Red Bear kid, at least I'm above him. Keep going. Uh, author to rescue con- the Constitution. Apparently, Brett doesn't do anything else in his free time. Right, or to rescue the paid. So I just thought, you know, maybe a little more. But I understand. There was a long Mike line. There was a, yeah, I saw that. But he, he got his hit TV show. <laughs> he didn't say TV show. I just noticed, you know, uh, Percy, Master P got a lot of... What about Master P? Don't you think you know, that was good? A successful businessman worked yeah, his way oh, up? I, hey, listen, circuit, listen, From the projects? One of the reasons why this book is so cool is, and I'm just going to be frank with you, sometimes when, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, when uh, a Caucasian such as yourself writes about um, African-American history, it can be kind of looked at as like uh, a place, it could be looked negatively. Or like where do you, But your relationships give you street credit to do that, and and one of my favorite things, and it's the in the beginning of the book, I, I love uh, your dedication to Jim Brown. I think a lot of people don't. I didn't know because you're not a guy. You're not a name dropper, which you know you're not. Yeah. And uh, I just thought it was one of uh, it really set the tone for the book. Oh, because thanks. Because when you think about Jim Brown, his football career was legendary, but him as a civil rights guy, well, yeah. him as a guy who kept it called it like it was, there was no one better. And during a time when being that way was not easy to do. It's not like today where you, I can just come on the radio and run my mouth and say anything about anyone with no consequences. Right. There was consequences and repercussions. And the fact that you had such a close uh, relationship with him and uh, you guys worked together, I just thought it was really, it was touching and classy and just kind of set the tone. Well, and, then, um, and the other thing was he wrote the, oh, he wrote the preface to my first book, The Games Do Count, because I wanted to prove that the best athlete of the century, that even if you don't achieve greatness – that you can learn a lot from sports. Yeah, absolutely. That was the, that was the premise of the first one. Now, a um, couple of things. One of the things I thought you did well in this book, and, and I, was that the plan? You really showed Teddy Roosevelt and Booker T have a lot in common, even though they have nothing in common. And it's just a weird – like Booker physically growing up had all the tools, but he needed to – he was forbidden. You weren't reading was forbidden. Not so allowed. He wasn't allowed to read. Played with the white kids, yeah, could, he, but he couldn't could go to school. Them. He could play with them. But when they went to school, quote, the door closed. And he would ask his mom, why can't I go in there? And she would tell him, like out of fear, that reading was forbidden. Bad things happened. But there was the grapevine. So he got most of his education, as most slaves did, through the grapevine where they would pass messages to the house. So that's hey. where his educational pipeline came from. But physically, even though... Uh, a diet of sweet potatoes and scraps. Same basically. thing every day. Yeah, no ginger cakes. And I'm not going to give that away. you got to read the book to know S- what ginger sleep cakes are about. Sleep it on the floor. Sleep it on the floor in a room. The the The, the house was freezing in the winter. It was hot in the summer. It was, no it was a shack. It was yeah. a shanty. Uh, and then on the other side of it, Teddy was born with a golden spoon in his mouth, had every possible 
advantage you could ask for, but he was physically sick as a child. He, had, he was diagnosed with asthma before it was fashionable. He had uh, some type dietary, of cholera that killed, had, his, killed his intestines. Like he literally was meek and weak, but he, was, he had a great mind. And at one point, his father says to him, doesn't matter how smart you are, if your body can't go, it's going to hold you back. So there was two. Did you? And he it, oh, he learned from. It. He compensated, yeah. and he got his father bought weights. Both bought him weights. Yeah. yeah, he got in the weight room, and, and Booker T got in the classroom, and they both improved upon their weaknesses. Which then is in, and I don't know if that was the plan. To, was that the plan to show that even though they're uh, completely different, but they had the same thirst for improvement and to be better. He, they both loved the self-made man. Yeah. They both, uh, he loved, when he picked up, up when, when Teddy picked up Up From Slavery, he had a pre-copy, pre-release copy, him and Edith read it. We got to meet this guy. Oh, my goodness, we got to meet this guy. And he's going to be in New York. Let's go meet him. And they meet in 1901. And that's what I think was the immediate attraction. Number two, if you look at Teddy Roosevelt's background, when he was a police commissioner, he was digging out the illegal immigrants who were being these kids who were forced to work as slave labor in New York City. A rich guy would normally, hey, I'm hanging out with you. Look at me. I'm a police commissioner. Instead, he told the cops, get your act together. Stop drinking. You're going to go to an academy. This is the way you hold your gun. This is the way you wear your uniform. And then he went with the, uh, with the press to find these illegal immigrants who were being abused in these, sh- in these apartments, in these dwellings by other people. So he had a sense of the little guy the whole time. Well, it, another thing is and uh, when he went off to become a, a cowboy, and one of the things I think that uh, this book is a, has a lot to do about their, their differences, but how they kind of share the same fire. And uh, I think it was his wife had passed, and he— Same both day as had, his mom. Yeah, yeah. Him, him, and, him and Booker both had, didn't have the best luck with the ladies. Like, I yeah. think they're both married three, three, three or four times. Three times. Three and, times uh, each. Twice for Teddy, three for uh, Booker, but his wife died. Yeah. So he goes off to become a, a, a cowboy, and he earns the respect of the men because he's doing all the work. He's not just there. And I think that is what makes – is that what's missing today? Like, when you Great. look at where Booker and Teddy are, you look at their resume. You look at the things they did in between to get where they wanted to go. I think that's the message of of yeah. this book. I don't think it's a black and white thing because there was never a black and white thing to them. Not to them. Not to them in a time when it should have been. Yeah. Not now where I can come and say whatever I want. There's a – you did that so well in this book where it's like you get a, you get a taste of – a book, and you're like, ah, oh, and then all of a sudden it flips to Teddy. Oh, and they're mir- this book, they mirror each other. And I'm a history guy. I never would have right. put them together the way that you have. How you know, are you able to do that? Well, number one, reading Booker T. Washington, he starts referencing Teddy Roosevelt a lot. And then I went to Tweed, and he was running the LIU Roosevelt Center, and that's a great grandson. Yeah, I and saw he's that also, And he's also, a, he's also a historian. And he knew everything about Teddy. And why was Teddy real to him? Well, Teddy's wife, Edith, outlived him by 30 years. He knew her. And he heard Sagamore Hill was not a national park to him. It was great-grandma's house. Right. So I said, listen, am I overstating? He goes, listen, Teddy Roosevelt said some things that would that shows he had blind spots about race. He was a man of his times. But for the most part, this was a real relationship. The respect they had for each other was tangible. And he said, if you want any proof, 
Go to Tuskegee. He's on the board. He's serving on the board. Read his commencement address when he's asked to be down there. They got the written address and they got the other address. He was so overwhelmed by what he saw, the quality of students that were there, the way they all learned to trade as well as to learn to read, write, and to the, the, the uh, uh, School of Higher Learning. They said that what you're doing here in the middle of the South, in Alabama, at this time, is just it's more than I ever could have thought. And then you read the rest of his speech. And I go, there's a lot here. And then you well, find out the way he went up to Ted Booker and he said, I need recommendations. I don't really know anyone in the South. I need judges, postmasters. Give me the best person. And he did. And they did it for four and they did it for seven and a half years. Now, you mentioned briefly the Tuskegee, his school. His school, I thought, was amazing because his goal was higher learning. But he also knew at the time that most African-Americans were going to be at best they could be allowed to do was manual labor. Yeah. You still had that ceiling that, and he was able to get through and there was men there was but the general consensus was you hire learning but you got to have a trade because you got to do something in between time. And I feel like that's the biggest message of this book. So it was like for men it was blacksmithing, it was uh carpentry, it was arch- it was agriculture, agriculture women, it was uh it was Seems sewing, just, teaching, yeah. things like that and then he was you were getting your ground game together. And that's something I always preach about. When people ask me, like, well, what is your – I said, you got to have, like, a, would you let your kid wrestle? Would you let your son go in, or daughter go into entertainment? they got to ha- give me a piece of paper with something on the ground that if this extra stuff doesn't work out. Yeah. Well, here the thing well, – then it wasn't an option. Like, oh, I'm going to go chase dreams. It was You didn't have that option in America at the time. It was if you want this, you've got to have this in the meantime. you got to be so good. White people have to hire you. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And when, when people started getting word, uh, Henry Ford, that, you know, what are you guys doing down there? We need their guys. You know, uh, uh, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie in Steele, he's like, you got un- this is a workforce down here I could have. And then others say, I'm going to go teach. I'm going to start my own. I'm going to start grambling. I'm going to start. I'm going to move on. I'm going to go into the military. They became the best sales tool for Tuskegee. So out they go. In come another 1,500, 1,500, 1,500 graduating class. Then they go out in the field. Then they come back again. And it just started exponentially growing and unbelievable that they didn't live till past 60, 59 and 60 years old. They're dead. They accomplished all this. It's stunning. That's and you you see today, you see our education system today. You see where it's a you want to you can put it on the federal. You can put it on bad teachers, but there has to be a fire. You have to want it. And. Not everyone's fire starts in the same place. And in, in this case, Booker T's fire was started just him growing up, and he just saw the world differently. He won, He was never swayed by anything, no matter how bad. At one point, he watched one of his uncles get uh, beat within an inch of his life. Uh, he saw the separations, but none of that ever deterred him. He was like, I'm going to find a way around this or right. through this. There's that fire there. I like to compare, like I keep telling you, this story, the, this, these, these two men's story is so relevant today because I think it, it, it magnifies what's lacking in what's going on today. You have this great picture, and I love it, uh, in the book, it's chapter 91, and where it's like the, with images of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington looking down from the wall above the blackboard, Tuskegee students learn American history in, their 19, in this 1902 photograph. So you can't see it at home, but I know we're on camera, whatever. But if we Fox, that what, uh, Fox yeah. Nation, yeah, yeah. So we've got it wrong now. Right. See, we want to rip the pictures down, right? Instead we, of the education. Well, why wouldn't we? Because George Washington had slaves. 
Why would you put? But, why would you put 1902? I think when yeah. I could literally name members of my family that were slaves, I probably would have been more angry to sure. see the George Washington picture than I would be today. When I'm so far removed from it, and that's the cop out. It's I, I feel like this pulls the blind. I'm so glad you said that. The BS because I've been trying to. Uh, I was trying to enunciate that and people have asked me you know why are we so divided today like what do you what's your message today i'm like, I'm like it's an insult i mean do i think what happened to george floyd is terrible yeah but do i think america is inherently racist no do we have a past that uh shows a segregationist was there slavery absolutely but it's an insult to the guys that work and the women that worked through it that got us better that gave their lives for it that made every effort not for themselves but for the masses to move our country forward who by the way frederick douglas loved the country yep uh, Booker T. Washington loved the country. Every reason not to. He, they, they could have stayed in Europe, Frederick Douglass, and lived a life of luxury. He was a celebrity. They have statues of him in Ireland, Frederick Douglass. That's how much they worshipped him. Booker T. Washington goes over there, and he's treated unbelievably. But he came back to America. I want to make it better. I'm going to live in the South. I'm not even going to live in the North. I'm not going to start a school and leave. Like I'm going to go in the South, and I'm going to make things better. And I'm going to see the lynchings and the Jim Crow laws and the poll taxes, and I'm going to pick my spots to make it better. And 1,500 at a time, I'm going to graduate people that will prove to anyone there is no difference between the races. It was one of the best colleges at its time out there. And it just goes to show with limited resources, or he and he often talked about how he would get donations with – you know, strings attached, you know. So it wasn't he was going, and while all this is going on, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is at the same time he's building. Now, he was obsessed with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham yeah. Lincoln was his guy. You know, he put, again, he put. Do you the see the picture of, the of him? Yes. Of the. Yeah. And he even, uh, I think it was a quote in the book where he says whenever he makes a decision or he's thinking on something, he would look up at the Abe picture because he assumed Abe would do the same thing, which made me laugh because if Abe was looking at his own picture, that kind of makes, ah. <laughs> makes him a jerk. But whatever. Uh but it was – No, thanks, when, man. When you look – and I know we don't have a lot of time, but there's so much – If this is a book you read with your teenage sons and daughters. This is a book that you, you read out loud because right. the message is so strong. But if you read – it's like the – history is always the blueprint of what's going on in the future. Right. And I think we can read their stories and look at what's going on today, and we can really break it down to one thing. Americans have become very lazy and spoiled. And they will use misinformation to be complacent. I don't want to go to school because George Washington's picture's on the ball. Uh, BS. I got George, you. Freed slaves got to pick. We got to pick our last names. Washington, <laughs> Jefferson. That's a great Abraham point. Lincoln, and he picked Washington. And he picked Washington. Tyrus, thanks so much. I look forward to uh, picking up your upcoming book, Nuff Said. And I assume... I'm in it. I hope it's okay. But listen, I will see. Listen, it, it, I will, listen, and you're going to interview would, me Saturday night on One Nation, right? Yep. Yep. All right. So we've got a lot of stuff going on. But yeah, if you have not, right. seriously, right. pick this up. It's and worth was this reading. intimidating to see me stand like this? I was more focused on the book. Next but, time I'll focus on you being intimidating. Last time you were here, you ripped the microphone off. So I'm glad the violence true. is. So we're we're getting better. But yeah, you, you're good, man. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
he's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. So, Martha, we just got a minute. Uh, my arch, your arch enemy, Tyrus, was just in here. It was a lot of tension as he passed by. But um, <laughs> your thoughts real quick about last night? So, um, sorry, I'm just still getting organized over here. I have a lot of stuff. I have my iPad, my notepad. And your actual pad. Two phones, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think one thing is, is quite clear, and it is that abortion is abortion continues to be very meaningful on the ballot, and that's why you see a lot of demo, a lot of states working to get those referendums on the ballots for 2024. Um, it's it, it's a huge issue. And right now, we have Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, South Dakota making every effort to get it on the ballot. Right. Seven states have already found a way to put it uh, in. You know, their rules are set. Right. Every referendum wins that sets some type of abortion rights, and they're going to do it four by four by four until they get to 50. And that's where the whole process is. I watched Chris Christie last night. He goes, this was for to give states the opportunity to make their own decision. Well, I, I think if, you know, if you're a Republican, you need to figure out a way to articulate and talk about this issue. And I think it's just to separate it because right. it's a state issue now, not a federal issue. Back in a moment. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The country has soured on Joe Biden. There's just not another way to put it. According to our latest CNN poll conducted by SSRS, a national poll that gives us this snapshot in time. Biden's approval rating is 39% in our poll, 61% disapprove of the job he's doing. Look at it by party. You see that even among his fellow Democrats, he's only at 77% approval in this poll. Only a third of independents approve of the job he's doing. And that is a CNN pundit uh, looking at uh, the success that they had in the off-year election last night and saying at the same time a second major poll was done that shows that Joe Biden's underwater with almost every major faction compared to where he was and where Trump is. His disapproval, his approval's at 39%. I thought that was a little high. More than I thought. And then Trump, he's trailing by four with Nikki Haley's trailing by six. With Ron DeSantis, he's trailing by two. But with Hispanics, even African-Americans, he's tripled where he was. Mm-hmm. Virtually yeah, more than tripled where he was. Martha McCallum, our guest, she's set to host uh, the story at three o'clock. Martha, they're trying to separate on other channels the Democrats from Joe Biden. Do the Democrats have a uh, messaging problem, policy problem, or do they have a Biden problem? That's the question. Right. That's been the question since the midterms, because we all remember, you know, then Kevin McCarthy, who wanted to be Speaker of the House. We're going to pick up 25, 30 seats is what he said for his team. Um, didn't happen. And the, ne- the morning after that election, the midterms, they woke up at the White House and they were like, whew, things are better than we thought. Yeah. They woke up the same way today. They're relieved. Things are better than they thought. They're very, you know, double down on the abortion issue. Get it on as many ballots as you can. So the question that remains when you look at all of this polling, which is very compelling and, you know, I mean, take that grain of salt, right? Because we see that the polls are somewhat of a measure, but not a very good measure Mm -hmm. in recent elections. But the big question for 2024 is how what does happen when people are saying to themselves in that booth or when they're home writing down their yeah. ballot, do they want Joe Biden again? And those numbers look terrible for him right now. But that's the question. So I thought David Axelrod put it perfectly. It's what uh, you and I have been saying, but for something about him saying it, 
people want to say, well, other incumbents have been down before at this similar point. But here's the big difference. Cut five. We had lousy polling numbers at this time in our campaign in 2011 when I was working for Barack Obama. But the two things that are different are that Obama was 50 and not 81. And uh, and uh, we didn't have Donald Trump on the other side. I think he kind of complimented Trump more than, I guess, Bob Dole was his. No, wait. Who did, he went against uh, Mitt Romney's Romney. second. Uh, Mitt Romney's McCain, second. John McCain. Romney, yeah. So, so uh, David Axelrod kind of saying that's the difference, 81 and 50. Yeah, I guess that that's one of the differences. I mean, the thing to remember about David Axelrod is that he never wanted Joe Biden to run in the first place, right? Because he knows him. He does know him. And he was in the room when people like the former president, Obama, were saying things like, you know, if you can count on Joe to F it up, right? Something like that. Exactly. Um, and don't, over- remember don't that- overestimate the, uh, the, the ability of Joe Biden to F it up. Thank you. Um, and we remember during the Democrat debates, David Axelrod said that Joe Biden looked like Mr. Magoo wandering around on the stage up there. OK, that's before he got elected. So we are now deep into the Mr. Magoo narrative that people watch all the time and talk about all the time. Now, he knew that then. So that goes into sort of, you know, that has to be one of the ingredients when you bake the cake about what David Axelrod says, because he never wanted Biden to be president. But he'll go on and say, oh, yeah, but he's doing a good job on this, doing a good job on Ukraine, doing a good job on that. You know, so, I mean. He's calling it like he sees it. The bottom line is, though, there's absolutely no indication that Joe Biden doesn't want to run for president. None. He doesn't have an, a, a plan B. Not like he Michelle can step Obama's. aside and say, like, you know, look at my amazing vice president. I, I, he said when he ran, <laughs> I want to be a bridge to the next generation. He was suggesting when he ran that he, he was thinking then, maybe I'll just do four years, right? I'm a bridge. You know, do, elect me. I'm older. Bridge to the next generation. He can't find the people on the other side of the bridge. That's the problem. So, you know, it may be that the thinking is run. He's assuming he will win. Even when he looks at these numbers, he says, oh, I take him on with a grain of salt, right? Assuming he will win. And then at some point, if he wants to step down, they got to figure out who's going to take over for him. Right. Uh, a couple of things. I don't even know if he likes the job. You know, sometimes you can see a joy in the job, even with the pressure. You know, you just I look at him. He's always angry. He's always, you know, he's always walking away from people. He never wants to talk to them. Every weekend he spends at his house. He doesn't relish the work. Like, I mean, whatever you want to say, DeSantis would be in there 20 hours a day. I don't think you'd get him back to Florida. I don't think he'd take a vacation. Trump was there all the time. You know, Trump didn't like Which the job. Which is so interesting, right? Because really, everyone Trump, said, oh, Trump's not going to be in D- He's not going to be in the White House. He's going to be back in New York. Every yeah. weekend he's going to leave. He loved the job. Right. Loved golfed, the White sure. House. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Played a lot of golf, but, you know, he, he loved the job. That's why he wants it again after right. all of this, right? I, I think so, too. I don't think I, – I laugh, too. They're trying to build up a narrative that Trump's making mistakes. He's not really making mistakes. Like the whole thing he did with Obama, they go, he keeps thinking they ran against Barack Obama. No, he isn't. He's trying to get it through everybody's head that Barack Obama's pulling the strings, that there's no way this guy can run. That's his point. So, again, going out of your way exactly right. to make something no, right. that, that he didn't make a mistake on. One time he said hungry instead of turkey or turkey instead of hungry. He corrects it in the next line. You stop it right there and go, look, nice try. You got a lot on Trump. Absolutely. You don't have that. No, you got 91 charges. You got all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of um, issues that you can go after right. Trump for. But, you know, I think the sharpness factor is not really one of them. You understand college students as many uh, as much as anyone. I have uh, three in college, actually. Yeah. They're both from advanced degrees, uh, two of which have had major, major demonstrations at their school. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, I don't want to, rather not say it. But the thing I found fascinating about this, it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. Do you know where they are today? They're going in front of the, the headquarters of the defense manufacturers, pro-Palestinian movement. Who are these kids? Do you think how many really are clued into the nuances of the Middle East and really understand what happened October 7th? I mean, I, I might be wrong. I don't think they do. I, I, I'm afraid I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I heard one articulate young woman making her argument the other day outside of the White House. She was very passionate. Uh, she said, we want the borders to go back to 1948. So she's talking about the post-World War II period when Israel was created. And, and yes, Palestinians lived on that land. I mean, that, that is a, that's a discussion that, that you can have, right? But, but what happened, Martha? The Isra- they said they didn't want it. That, that's right. And, and they have had many opportunities for two-state solutions very close at the table. Yasser Arafat uh, ultimately walked away. Abbas ultimately walked away. because You know why? Because when they turned around to their team and said, I think we have a deal, and the team said, does it include – so Israel's no longer? Uh, no, it doesn't include that. They're still in Israel. Okay, never mind. We're walking away. So so that's the situation that, that they're dealing with. And, and Israel yeah. – the country was created in 1948, but it has been the land of the Israelites for – 3,500 3, years. It was the promised land promised by God to Moses. If you're, I don't, you know, I mean, whether you're religious or not, this is, this is the history of their story. So it, it, it's, it's a 3,000 year history. It is not in since 1948 history. And no, I don't think most of those people have any clue. Archaeology backs that up, by the way. It's not your opinion. Absolutely. It's not the it Bible. Does. It's, it's, we know who was living there when yeah. based on excavations that are done at these sites. And it goes, it goes deep thousands of years. So they get attacked in 1948. They try to rip it apart. They were able to repel and grow, and they built in buffer zones. And then in 67, we're going to finish you off. They didn't. If you think about it, it's stunning. 73, they were surprised, battled them all the way back, and got to Damascus, and got to Cairo. So they, they're both times. They took the buffer zones, and they make peace deals. What I was fascinated by, a couple of things. Uh, did you know, I, I saw this over the weekend. Sorry, I read one of the speeches one of the Saudi princes made, and he said, we know Iran. He looked at the Hezbollah speech from Nasrallah, and he says, why are you pretending as if you're a terror group? Iran is pulling all your strings, and we know you, this has nothing to do with the Palestinians. I, go, I kept going. It's Jerusalem Post printing a speech, translated obviously, that he gave to his people, saying Iran's right behind it. Mm-hmm. Not only are we not addressing Iran, our guys, we have 46 injuries. Our guys have been hit 34 times. They've been hit in Syria, and they've been hit in Iraq. And we do not answer back. We hit a, a empty weapons depot one time. Now, if you had a kid serving in Iraq, 2,500 in Iraq and 900 in Syria, 45,000 overall, one of these moms wrote me and said, don't kid you, they're getting rockets in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. How would you feel today? I'd be so angry. I, I I'm, have my son representing a superpower, and they're letting them be victims, hoping a missile defense knocks out a a scud before it blows up my kid. Well, you know, I, th- I think I said this last time we talked, Brian, but it does remind me of when Putin's forces were massed around the border of Ukraine. And President Biden said, you know, well, a minor incursion might no be OK. So I guess these are minor incursions. Um, 40 attacks on our forces all over. We have 19 bases in the Middle East. Um, we have a lot of 
of treasure in in that area. Right. It's it's that needs to be protected. And you're right. We need to call out where it's coming from. And and many um, you know pieces that I've read from Middle East experts talk about. The, you know, basically they're saying Hamas and Israel are going to duke this out. This is their take. But you need to hit Iran right. where it lives because you need to show them that you are not going to back down. Hit them at home in their nuclear facilities. You know, go right after their weapons caches and blow them out. Send them a serious message that we know it's you mm. behind all of this. That isn't happening. Martha, knowing what you know about Netanyahu, as stunned as he was, and evidently he was more stunned than anyone mm. else that he would allow himself or his country would be allowed for that to happen, an attack for over an hour to a 1,400 get massacred in the worst imaginable yeah. place. They had assassins killing nuclear engineers in the street 10 years, six years ago until Trump came in when they realized Trump was not going to let him get a nuclear weapon in this deal. He came over here to plead, don't do this nuclear deal. We, he's on a war footing. The world knows why he's doing it. If he's ever going to take out Iran and their nuclear program after he knows annihilation is not a mystery anymore. We know exactly who's behind it. They, they would have went through the whole country if they could have. You really think he's not going to hit Iran? I mean, I think he's I think he's I think we're going to be back here within six months because, you know, there's only a certain amount of time you get to throw punches. After that, there's going to be a rationalization. It was just a rocket. It was just a hit. No, that was a massacre. There's only one massacre, hopefully for their sake. But this is the time in which I have to address these problems or else I I will not be able to look the future generations in the eye. These people know what, catacly- what it was like to be cataclysmic. You know I think it's very interesting what you say, Brian. And, it, and it goes, I go back to the conversations that were going on between Netanyahu and um, the leadership in Saudi Arabia and MBS. And the other um, point that you just made about the take on Nasrallah, it was also there was a statement the other day, I believe it was from the UAE, that basically talked about how, you know, this land is the origins of all great religions, Jewish people, Christians and Muslims, you know, recognizing this dispute. They I see many indications that Israel and Saudi Arabia would like to get back to where they were on October the 6th. And I think the forces in the Middle East mm-hmm. want to – they want to get back there. This might not be the moment, but I don't know if it's that far away. <laughs> and that's a very strong force. They want to isolate Iran, and Iran knows it. That's one of the reasons that they were behind this whole this whole supporting of Hamas. So watch them. Watch Saudi Arabia. Watch the United Arab Emirates. Watch right. all of these countries because I think they want to get back to October 6th. And we know the one problem is it's not multiple countries. It's one. But I do think in the big picture, we'll talk about this when we get back and find out your guest at 3 o'clock. And that is, I think Iran, Russia, China, and to a degree North Korea are coordinating. Absolutely. And they're playing our strings and they're trying to string us out. And we better come up with a counter narrative. That's what I hope they were talking about. Can you imagine how happy all, they all are, Iran in the lead, when they see what's happening on our campuses? They're like, who knew? Who knew how productive this horrific Hamas attack would be? We now have people on our sides on Capitol Hill, on campuses across America. And they've been working on this for a long time, right? There's a ton of money mm-hmm. that has gone into our universities. Just the same story we had with China. The same story exists from from some of these Arab groups as well. I'm not saying that they're all ill-meaning to the country at all. I'm just saying that you have to trace the money and find out exactly what's going on. Martha McCallum, we're here for just a couple more minutes uh, when we come back. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. 
You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. The whole country wants to move on. And I, I think that it would be uh, the right thing to do for the president to not run. What's in the best interest of the country here? And I, I don't mean to be so frank. I love Joe Biden. He's done a great service to this country. But now it's time for us to just take the next step. All right. Uh, that, of course, is Tim Ryan. Uh, he tried to be governor. He lost Democrat. Uh, and he is saying Joe Biden step aside. Martha McCallum, that's two. We'll see how many other people speak out on the Democratic side. Uh, for you, what do you have coming up today? You have a lot of choices for an hour from three to four. So we're, we're going to talk to John Kirby from the White House today. And we're also going to talk to uh, Dorrance Bielman, who's the IDF international spokesperson. So obviously a lot of focus on the push, which is now underway in Gaza City, what's going on there. And we're going to try to get some questions from the White House on where this is all going. I want to talk about the Israeli war. Just a quick announcement. Uh, uh, tomorrow night, Red Bank, New Jersey. Have you been there? I've been to Red Bank. Really? Okay. Yeah. They say it's an hour outside the city. I'm going to be at the Vogel on stage talking about all my books. Good it's going to be uh, sponsored by uh, Fox Nation. And they, if you go there, you get six free months. And everybody gets a signed book. So there's a few tickets left. We're almost sold out. Ponte Vedra on Friday, almost sold out. Uh, the 11th in the on the Villages. And Vero Beach on Sunday. And then Madison, Connecticut on Tuesday. Oh, that Vero Beach bookstore is amazing. Well, at the Vero Beach, yeah. They it's got two place. tiers. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, it reminds me, I guess for, for people that write books, it is like Ebbets Field. Yes. Because it's like Ebbets uh, <laughs> Old Time Field. You know, you turn that corner, like, wow, there's a lot of people up there. It's amazing. Uh, good with, Good for you. Let you let's end uh, with this. How strong is the push to pause? Right now they say we'll return 15 hostages if you guys just pause. Mm-hmm. How strong is that? For Netanyahu, and how much does he care? Well, I, I think it's a question of strategy. So then what is it? We've, we're, they've been at this for a month, so 15 if you pause, and then is it another month and 15 more? Um, I, I think that Netanyahu's stance is that they want everyone uh, to, in order to do a ceasefire. And Nathan Sales, who did counterterrorism in the Trump administration, spoke to him about it as well. He says the same thing. You have to have you have to let every living hostage. We don't know how many are living. We hope they all are go in order for a ceasefire. How important is it to see the video of the Boy Scout camp, to see the tunnels under the hospital, to see the tunnels under the mosque? They have to get that out. They know how to communicate. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they're doing their best to do that. There's one that's under an, an amusement park. I mean, it's a tiny place. So all of this is going to be under everything, essentially. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm just constantly struck by is how little Hamas has done for the people of Gaza. You know, they, they have been unoccupied since 2005. They argue that that is not the case. Um, but the money has gotten siphoned out and it's gone to the leadership in Qatar and other places. And the people live in an absolutely horrific situation. And now they're being bombed every day. If your heart doesn't go out to the people of Gaza, you know, you're not looking closely enough. But but this was brought on all of them by Hamas. Yeah. The people say that if you speak up against Hamas, they will kill you absolutely. and you did or that your great family thing on Voices of Gaza the other day. Right. And I think it's important for that to get out. All right, Martha, it's very important that you do our show every week. Thank you, Brian. It's, it's almost, a pleasure. E- almost equal as important. As those voices. <laughs> Good to be we'll with see you. you at three.
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.